Welcome, listeners, to Colts Anon. The first rule of Colts Anon is that we don't talk about cults. And the second rule of Colts Anon is that we don't talk about cults. I'm your host and podcast creator, Bailey Rivers. Let's talk about cults. If you are new to the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and make an offering of a rating and a review to appease the fickle gods of the algorithm. Follow me on Instagram at cults underscore anon for podcast updates and bonus content. In our episode this week, we will be wading into the waters of some of the darkest recesses of the cult world, the contemporary Christian Zionist movement in the United States. Similar to the Jewish Zionist movement, whose origins we explored in episode 8, go back and give it a listen if you haven't yet, the Christian Zionists aren't really practicing the authentic teachings of Jesus Christ, but rather they are a group of radical political extremists who hide their machinations behind the Christian faith in the same way the Jewish Zionists hide their political ideas behind the Jewish faith, the same way many Jewish Zionists delight in giving all Jewish people a bad name by going around committing war crimes and horrific atrocities and then claiming it's all supposedly in the name of all the Jewish people, Christian Zionists like John Hagee delight in giving off the impression that all Christian people are hate-filled, ignorant bigots such as himself. While I have met many people who claimed to be Christian who were hate-filled bigots, I have also met many who are not. Some people just choose to be hate-filled. The only thing to do, in my opinion, is call them out on it. And many Christians do, and have. Many practicing Christians from a wide variety of Christian religious traditions, much of whom don't even get along with each other, have come out in vocal and repeated opposition to the Christian Zionist movement. Its founders what it stands for, and its blatant and willful heresy against the true teachings of Jesus Christ. Christian Zionism is a doomsday cult of radical extremists who literally want to destroy the world. Its origins lie, just like the Jewish Zionist movement, in the complicated political atmosphere that led up to World War I and the Christian Zionists proudly espouse many of the same type of fascist ideologies that characterized so many European powers during the World War I and World War II conflicts, including their extreme patriarchal enforcement of gender roles and the beliefs in racial purity and ethnic supremacy. We have already discussed one active group of Christian Zionists at length, off and on throughout this podcast, the Mormons of the United States. However, Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon predate the contemporary Zionist movement, and while the Mormon Church and its many affiliated and not-so-affiliated smaller Mormon groups have fully allied themselves today with the Christian Zionist movement, they aren't necessarily the same thing. In this episode, we will be focusing on the largest expressly Christian Zionist organization in the United States— a group called Christians United for Israel, and its founder, 
televangelist hate preacher John Hagee. This deep dive into Christians United for Israel is part of our ongoing coverage of the 2023 Rapture Watch, which we, of course, are still under, with only a month left to go in 2023. Time is running out on this year, and we are still waiting for that rapture to happen. Any day now. Waiting for God to just show up. Any minute, really. We're all just hanging out here. Waiting for God. Someone should write a play about this or something. But while we wait, we might as well talk about why John Hagee is a delusional false prophet literally working off of information he got from some crazy cult leader he met in San Francisco in the 70s, which, as we have already explored here at Cults Anon, cult leaders in California in the 70s were not good, reliable sources of prophetic information generally, as often as they were human traffickers, drug kingpins, and CIA operatives. Let's talk about it. John Hagee was born in Baytown, Texas on April 12, 1940. He attended Trinity University and the University of North Texas, where he received a master's degree in mechanical engineering. In 1966, Hagee founded Trinity Assembly Church in San Antonio, Texas. He was a politically active pastor from the beginning of his career, endorsing Democrat George Wallace's presidential bid in 1968 and founding a youth movement called, quote, the Wallace Youth, where he recruited young people from his congregations to travel around to various political rallies in support of George Wallace's campaign. George Corley Wallace Jr. was an American politician from Alabama who is best known for having served four terms as governor of Alabama and his four failed presidential runs throughout his career three times as a Democratic candidate, and once as an independent. He is notorious for his vocal support of segregation, including his defense of the racist Jim Crow policies that had been codified into law throughout much of the American South after the abolition of slavery. George Wallace defined himself and his political career through his opposition to the civil rights movement. He declared in his 1963 inaugural address as the governor of Alabama that he stood for, quote, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever, end quote. In an incident known as the stand in the schoolhouse door in 1963, George Wallace stood in the entryway of the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa to block the entry of the university's first two black students, Vivian Malone and James Hood. In response to Wallace's refusal to allow the students' entry, then-President John F. Kennedy issued an executive order that federalized the Alabama National Guard, and Guard General Henry Graham ordered Wallace to stand down and allow the students' entry, which he eventually did. Finally, desegregating the University of Alabama. Given the nature of George Wallace's political career and ideologies, starting a, quote, Wallace youth force in support of his presidential campaign starts to take on a certain undertone that is similar to other such-and-such youth movements um, and that kind of undertone only really escalates from there 
when it comes to John Hagee. He has come under hot water on numerous occasions for preaching that Adolf Hitler's anti-Semitism was directly caused by his Catholic background. And he blames the Catholic Church for the Holocaust, John Hagee does. Uh, not he does not the Nazis. It wasn't the Nazis' fault. It wasn't any of that. It was the Catholic Church's fault that Hitler was anti-Semitic, according to John Hagee. So that's a take. That's a take. Um, he also blames the Catholic Church for the Dark Ages, just all of the Dark Ages, you know, whatever that means to him. And uh, he called all of the Crusaders rapists and murderers, which, considering what Hagee's little pet project, the IDF and the State of Israel, have been doing to thousands of innocent Palestinian women and children illegally detained in their prisons for decades... That is the pot calling the kettle black, in my opinion. Having been raised in a Catholic family, in a community with several Christian Zionists, I have experienced firsthand the vitriolic hatred and discrimination that many of a certain type of person who identifies themselves as a Christian of a certain kind tends to think of themselves as being part of a superior class or race of people who feel it is perfectly acceptable to express their hatred and contempt for other classes and groups of people, including Catholic people, right to our faces. I was pretty horrifically bullied for years by little children whose parents fed them on a steady diet of red meat and ignorant hatred of anyone perceived to be other. Mormons and the other Protestant kids would uh, lock me in bathrooms or barricade me in closets, screaming at me that I was Bloody Mary or a slut or a whore or a Jezebel, who of course was going to burn in hell because I'm Catholic. Or sometimes they would get a little confused about why they were supposed to hate me because I was more in self-realization fellowship than I was a practicing Catholic as a child. My parents had converted to SRF in the 70s, and they had raised me in the context of that. So uh, that would confuse, like, the Christian Zionist kids that were bullying me at school, and they would start trying to tell me that I was going to hell for being a Buddhist. Like, they couldn't even insult me correctly for believing in the sect of Hinduism that I did, because they were so ignorant that they didn't even know what Hinduism was. They barely knew what Buddhism was. They definitely didn't know anything about Judaism. And if they have so little understanding of any of these religions, then they really don't understand Christianity, do they? Because they are equally as ignorant about the history and theology of their own purported faith as they are about, say, Buddhism. Many Christian Zionists that I have encountered in my life don't even understand the history 
of Christianity and the relationship between Protestantism and the Catholic Church. They don't even understand what the Protestant Reformation was. It's it's just it just goes to show the level of disconnection that is taking place among fundamentalist groups in this contemporary present moment. If we actually went by Jesus's teachings in the Bible, then the vast majority of the Christian Zionists who are desperately praying for his return are in for a rude awakening if he ever does show up, because the things they support and the things they advocate are in direct opposition to everything he ever said or stood for. It's kind of sad, honestly. I feel bad for many people's misunderstandings of the spiritual teachings of their own religious traditions. It's it's sad. The endless hatred and the petty judgments that are characteristic of high-control authoritarian groups are dangerous, exhausting, pointless, and seemingly endless. These type of organizations always need someone to hate and someone to blame for their own bad actions. And that blame shifting is what enables them to continue to commit those bad actions without ever having to take responsibility or face consequences. With Zionists, it's constant DARVO, an acronym that stands for Deny, Attack, Reverse Victim, and Offender. The DARVO tactic is often employed by domestic abusers to protect themselves from accountability and shift the blame of their assault onto their victims. For example, when an abusive spouse hits their partner and then says something like, I didn't hit you, you started it, you hit me first, I was defending myself, I'm the real victim here. And what are the Zionists if not domestic abusers who have turned abuse culture into an oppressive authoritarian state? This type of Darvo tactic has unfortunately become Zionism 101. We are seeing John Hagee's same strategy of calling everyone in their mom anti-Semitic except for the actual Nazis all over the place in the mainstream media right now as the state of Israel and all of their various propaganda outlets like the Anti-Defamation League and Sarah Silverman accuse every human being on earth of being anti-Semitic for calling out Israel's genocide of the Palestinian people. As though committing an ethnic cleansing against the Semitic people of Palestine is not anti-Semitic. As we have discussed in episode 8, many people in power at the IDF and the Israeli government were, and in some cases are, literal Nazi capos or Jewish Nazi collaborators who entered Israel with the Holocaust refugees and quickly took over the newly established state in 1946. Israel's favorite tactic is to call Palestinians Nazis, while simultaneously talking about how the real Nazis who committed the actual Holocaust 
weren't really all that bad after all. Isn't that interesting? It's like a man beating his wife and then saying she started it and crying about how he is the real victim when he gets caught, even while she lies bleeding on the floor. I don't know what's more disturbing. The fact that certain people have so little human decency that they would do things like this, or the fact that it works. It works great. It's worked like a charm for decades. A lame excuse of religion has enabled 70 plus years of anti-Semitic ethnic cleansing to take place against the Palestinian people, all with the supposed Jews taking the blame. Many of the leaders and membership in the current Zionist movements, as they exist today all over the globe, are, in my experience, themselves about as anti-Semitic as it's possible to get. They are often almost as proud of their dislike of non-German Semitic people as they are of their dislike of the Palestinian Semitic people. Isn't that interesting how that has happened? I've had my Jewish identity and heritage compulsively invalidated by Zionists of German descent, both Jewish and Christian, for many years, particularly in the art world, where Israel has spent decades buying out artists and institutions in order to inject their vitriolic anti-Palestinian propaganda into the narrative of the American fine art scene. I'll be honest with you, dear listener. These are some truly alarming times to be living in as a person of both Jewish and Catholic descent, even here in the United States, where at least in the past, historically, somewhat, Catholic people and Jewish people have been relatively safe. I never thought my country would devolve to the point where I felt like Nazi KKK members are chomping at the bit to burn me at the stake on accusations of being a Catholic Jewish witch who practices astrology, but here we are living in the literal dark ages brought on by John Hagee, not the Catholics, John Hagee, with flat earthers and witch hunters holding political office while we all try to survive a global plague and a feudally oppressive rent burden at the same time. This is pretty lame. There's a lot of radicalized people walking around these days, armed to the teeth, who view individuals with ethnic heritages such as myself as their personal public enemy number one, not based on our actions, but just based on who our ancestors may have been or may not have been. It's not even based in reality. It's just based in people's perceptions. As we have explored at length in this podcast, these type of radical groups and their you're either with us or against us mentality is a very dangerous way of thinking. And that's just a historical and contemporary fact based off of the brutality and violent actions that have been funded and supported by groups that propagate these types of ideologies. There is never any justification for the murder of children and anyone who is preaching that it's okay to commit ethnic cleansing in the name of God is just weaponizing religion full stop. 
The idea that any God or any book or any fairy tale Santa Claus that these type of people make up could ever justify the murder of thousands of children is just a sickening perversion of spiritual faith. Any false prophet who preaches hate and funds genocide with the, with the tithe money collected at their church is the real Antichrist, and yet they are the ones that go around calling other people the Antichrist every single day. Takes one to no one, John Hagee. John Hagee, however does not exist in a vacuum. It's not like any one person can be held responsible for the entire Christian Zionist movement. And Hagee's hate ministry didn't just drop, fully formed out of the sky, like a giant unholy turd that Satan shit out on the unsuspecting people of San Antonio. He built this monstrous thing over time, and the haters that make up his audience came to fill the pews in ever-increasing numbers to listen to his hate-mongering of their own volition, so he must have done something effective at some point, or he wouldn't have the money and the congregation numbers that he currently enjoys. After backing that one quintessential Southern Dixiecrat segregationist k -k -k candidate George Wallace in the 1960s and 70s, John Hagee pivoted the focus of his political ministries to backing various Republican presidential candidates, including Alan Keyes and John Shields. The original Christians United for Israel organization was not actually affiliated with John Hagee's ministries in the beginning. Christians United for Israel was originally founded in 1975 by a Pentecostal evangelical preacher, Dr. David A. Lewis, who was ordained by the Assemblies of God in 1956. You may recall American Pentecostalism from episode two of this podcast when we discussed the influence of the Pentecostal Latter Rain movement on Jim Jones and the People's Temple. We also discussed Pentecostalism and its connections to Scottish Presbyterianism in episode six, the first part of our Mooney's deep dive, when we discussed the religious movements that influenced the development of Sun Myung Moon and the Unification Church. Several of David Lewis's sermons are available for streaming on the website pentecostalgold.com, and I've skimmed through them, a few of them. They really cover the whole Pentecostal evangelical greatest hits list all in one place. That guy was textbook, doomsday, fundamentalist, biblical, Pentecostal conspiracy nonsense. He even gave a sermon in, in, a, in an odd twist. He gave a sermon about how the Moonies are a cult mixed right in with his other hours-long Sun Myung Moon-esque doomsday rants railing against the evils of communism, witchcraft, and the Illuminati. He gives a sermon about how the Moonies are a cult. Clearly, Sun Myung Moon and his messianic aspirations hit a little too close to home for Dr. Dave, but he sadly lacked the self-awareness to apply the lens through which he judged the Moonies onto himself and his own religious, Zionistic, radical ideologies. 
Evangelical preachers like David Lewis, John Hagee, and Jerry Falwell have made the political and financial support for the state of Israel a cornerstone. Get it? Cornerstone? Hagee's Cornerstone Church. A cornerstone of the charismatic Christian evangelical movement, which currently spans across many sects of the American Protestant Christianity, from the Pentecostals to the Mormons and even into the more radical conservative Catholic organizations, despite the fact that so many Zionists like Hagee, perhaps due to the evangelical Anglican roots of the movement, really seem to hate Catholics quite a bit. The foundations of the Christian Zionist movement, however, predate the popularization of evangelicalism throughout the United States of America. The roots of the movement can be traced back to the English Puritans and the Anglican Reformation. For more information on the English origins of the Zionist movement, I recommend looking into the work of Reverend Dr. Stephen Sizer, one of the top faith-based advocates for the people of Palestine and for the cause of justice for the oppressed throughout the world. Ordained in the Church of England, Reverend Sizer was a vicar in Surrey for many years. I got a lot of the brief overview of the English roots of Christian Zionism that I'm about to go over here from Sizer's 2018 presentation, The Historical Roots of Christian Zionism, that he gave at the Jerusalem Fund and Palestine Center in 2018. According to Stephen Sizer, the earliest theories of what would later develop into the Christian Zionist movement that we are familiar with today were based on the idea that Jewish people would need to convert to Christianity and then return, once they've converted, to the region of the Levant prior to the return of Jesus Christ. This early movement, referred to as Restorationism, is considered to be the early basis for what is today the Christian Zionist movement. The origins of Anglican Restorationism are in the Anglican Evangelical Church, some of whose members became founders of a group known as the London Jew Society in 1808, with the express purpose of helping the Jewish people by first identifying all of the Jewish diaspora from all around the world, and then putting them all together in Palestine. Joseph Wilkie, one of the founders of the society, traveled extensively throughout Asia, searching for the, quote, lost tribes of Israel in pursuit of this cause. Charles Simon, an English evangelist, called for the, quote, restoration of God's chosen people, by whom he meant the Jews, and their union with the Gentiles into one universal church, end quote. So the early founders of what would eventually evolve into Christian Zionism were more into that version of it where everybody converts to Christianity and everybody gets along. Before they could really get underway with any of this how they were actually going to go about finding all of the lost tribes of Israel and then getting them to Palestine. Their plan was set back by the rise of Napoleon and the French Empire, who blockaded a bunch of British ports. And apparently the early, some of these early Anglican people 
viewed Napoleon as a sort of antichrist type figure who was preventing them from going about their, what they perceived to be their holy mission of bringing Jesus Christ back to earth by putting all Jewish people together in Palestine. Even though they were apparently viewing him as the Antichrist in this situation. It wasn't like Napoleon Bonaparte himself was anti-Zionist. He was also a Zionist. In 1799, Napoleon was the first ruler, the first world ruler, to promise the Jews a homeland. He believed that a compliant Jewish community occupying the land of Palestine would be a key strategic element to his plans for world domination. But as we know, he was ultimately foiled there, and eventually he gave up his plans for expanding his empire, and he died in exile. On a side note, I visited Italy in college once and took a train to Elba, the island where Napoleon, one of the islands where Napoleon was exiled to for a short time, after he, he wasn't, he was un unemperored. And me and my friends got really drunk and climbed over the closed gate into the public park that they had uh, turned Napoleon's old fortress into. And we just spent like four hours there wandering around, drunkenly pretending to get into sword fights with Napoleon's ghost. Or at least that's what I was doing. <laughs> I can't speak for everyone. That was pretty wild. Would recommend vacations in Italy, lots of art. Lots of super incredible architecture, lots of ghosts, lots of trains, great public transportation. Sometimes it's easy to forget that the places from our sort of simultaneously over and under dramatized concepts of history were the exact same places back then that they currently are right now. So many people talk about the Italian Renaissance, like it was this magical thing that happened long ago and far away in a mysterious place. But all of that art and all of that architecture from the Italian Renaissance is still there in Italy. And, and so are the living descendants of all of those artists who are currently making really cool art still, like arguably even better paintings than people were making back then. So, you know, sometimes it's the thing that people do, particularly with the Italian Renaissance, where they just overly historicize it. And they say, you know, we've lost all of those ancient techniques. We haven't lost those techniques. Go to Italy. They're still doing all of that stuff. It's just, it's just kind of ridiculous how normalized it is in the contemporary art world for people to just completely dismiss the contemporary art, the existence of contemporary art and contemporary artists in favor of just this fetishization of history as though you can't just go there and meet a bunch of painters and people who are still working in the exact same traditions that they were working in in the in Italy in the 1600s. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like Napoleon was just some dude who tried to take over the world on behalf of France and then ended up living in exile on some islands in Italy. And you too, in this time, can go to that island and visit that castle.
and look out at the exact same sea that he looked at. That's kind of cool. I mean, that's obviously one of the main appeals of tourism and the hospitality industry, looking at artworks people have made and connecting with history, which is why it's so tragic when great artworks and great architecture get looted or destroyed in wars and conflicts. Looking at you, Britain. Anyway, Napoleon didn't succeed in creating a compliant Jewish state in Palestine, while Britain sort of did eventually, but only with the help of the French, actually, so they kind of ended up having to work together on it in the end, ironically. As we discussed in episode 8 of this podcast, the British and French colonial rule of so-called mandatory Palestine was quickly overthrown by the radical Jewish Zionist groups that the British government relocated there, who were more closely affiliated with the governments of Germany and Poland during the 1940s and 50s. Many members of these radical groups were so-called capos, or Nazi collaborators of Jewish descent, who saw the British and French colonial rule of mandatory Palestine as oppressive and needing to be overthrown just as soon as they managed to get themselves into the region. After the fall of Napoleon's empire, the Christian Zionists in Britain redoubled their efforts to gain support for the concept of the Jewish state in British Parliament. Zionist Christian church leaders and politicians formed the Albury Circle in Surrey. According to Steve Sizer, they were, quote, convinced that Britain had a manifest destiny that included controlling the Middle East and returning the Jews to Palestine in the belief that they would assist Britain in its colonial endeavors, end quote. One of the founders of the Albury Circle, John Nelson Darby, preached the concept of dispensationalism, and it is here that we see the introduction of the concept of people being raptured. Rather than the one church, one people living happily together as long as they love English Jesus idea that Charles Simon and the British guy that was running around Asia looking for the lost tribes had, J.N. Darby thought that the Christian church was a distinct people from the people of Israel. He believed that the Jewish people of Israel would remain on earth as God's earthly people, and that the Christian members of the church, including himself, presumably, would be raptured to heaven and become God's, quote, heavenly people. This is where the whole rapture thing comes into play with Darby. Another member of the Albury Circle who had a little bit more political clout, was Lord Shaftesbury. He was an English Anglican politician who did a lot of groundwork furthering the cause of what he called the Jewish Restoration. He funded explorations in the state of Palestine and lobbied English Parliament for years to get them to pursue this manifest destiny restoration of the Jews to the supposed promised land. Theodore Herzl, who's widely considered to be one of the, if not the, founders of Jewish Zionism, took a lot of inspiration from Lord Shaftesbury. According to Sizer, Theodore Herzl based his notorious quote 
a land of no people for a people with no land, off a statement Lord Shaftesbury made some 50 years prior, when he said, quote, a country without a nation for a nation without a country in regard to the Zionist settlement and occupation of Palestine. So here we can really see the tragic origins of much of what has become really paranoid and delusional contemporary thinking surrounding the Israel-Palestine conflict. From the beginning, the Zionists were intentionally or unintentionally constructing a narrative that the state of Palestine was just an empty place waiting for the Jewish diaspora to fill it up, a childish fantasy at best, and a recipe for horrific genocide and ethnic cleansing at worst. With the clarity of hindsight, we can see that the absolute worst-case scenario has indeed played out time and again when it comes to settler colonial aspirations in general, and specifically the settler colonial aspirations related to the Jewish state of Israel in particular. There were three Christian Zionist leaders present at the First World Zionist Congress in 1897, the most notable of whom was William Hetchler, an Anglican chaplain at the British Embassy in Vienna. He published the book, The Restoration of the Jews to Palestine, in 1894, two years before Theodor Herzl published his notorious The Jewish State in 1896. Herzl talks about the influence Hetchler had on his ideas in his own diary, writing, quote, the Reverend William Hetchler, chaplain of the English embassy here, came to see me, a sympathetic gentle fellow with the long gray beard of a prophet. He is enthusiastic about my solution of the Jewish question. He also considers my movement a prophetic turning point, which he had foretold two years before. End quote. Hetchler reportedly told Herzl, that the Anglican Christians had, quote, prepared the ground, end quote, for the Jews to occupy Palestine. And Herzl described Hetchel as being, quote, at once clever and mystical, cunning and naive, end quote. Imagine being a fly on the wall in the room during that conversation. Wow. Hetchler went on to follow through on his promises of supporting Herzl and the Jewish Zionist movement, and he introduced Herzl to many of the British and German politicians that Herzl lobbied for support for the creation of the State of Israel. Of course, Herzl had intended for it to be in Africa, but the British Zionist movement had their hearts set on the strategic potential of that same compliant Jewish state in Palestine that Napoleon had wanted to create so badly. 
Charles Balfour actually asked Hetchler and the Zionist movement to write the first draft of the Balfour Declaration in 1917. The Balfour Declaration came straight from the Christian Zionist community in England in the early 1900s. So how does Israel go from being a strategic weapon of the French and British empires to one of the United States empire? Well, again, with Israel, it seems like a mix of evil machinations of some with the misguided and naive good intentions of others. In 1976, Democratic President Jimmy Carter became the first American president to openly espouse his belief in Christian Zionism. And it's in the figure of Jimmy Carter that we can see where the Zionist movement was able to first infiltrate into the progressive political establishment here in the United States. You may recall that we briefly discussed the Carter administration in our Mooney's deep dive in regards to their attempt to crack down on corruption in the U.S. government and their investigation into the Unification Church and Koreagate. Jimmy Carter, a Democrat who held office after Republican Gerald Ford and before Republican Ronald Reagan, pardoned all Vietnam War draft dodgers on his second day in office. He established the Department of Energy and the Department of Education. After his presidency, he established the Carter Center, a nonprofit organization that defends human rights. He's called violence against women and children the greatest crisis of the modern age, and he published two books about the Israeli-Palestine conflict in which he criticized Israel's treatment of the Palestinian people as apartheid. And I think Jimmy Carter's changing attitudes towards Israel throughout his political career is indicative of the vast majority of American politicians' attitudes towards the state of Israel. Jimmy Carter was pretty vocal about supporting Israel and Christian Zionism for a period of time, in large part due to the influence of the Christian evangelical propaganda that has been artificially developed as a sort of centuries-long biblical psyop that people keep buying into because they are really into the Bible, basically. But like many pro-Israel Americans that I have known, Carter moved away from his support of the state of Israel when he became increasingly aware of the horrific violence and brutality that was being committed by the IDF, the Israeli government, and Israeli settlers against innocent Palestinian people, including the systematic weaponization of sexual violence as a military tactic used against Palestinian women and children, which Jimmy Carter and his wife Rosalind, R.I.P. Rosalind Carter, who just recently passed away, had dedicated their lives to fighting against. And it's here with this reflection on the complicated legacy of the Carter administration, that we will end part one of our deep dive into the Christian Zionist movement and the origins of the Christians United for Israel para-religious organization. Join me again next week when we will explore the manner in which the Anglican Christian Zionists were able to popularize their ideologies 
through the development of the propaganda powerhouse that is televangelist evangelicalism, a.k.a. televangelism, and how it was all started by a Canadian woman preacher in the 1920s known as Sister Amy. If you enjoyed this podcast, or got something out of it anyway, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review to help us out with the algorithms. And remember, information is power, autonomy is sacred, and joy is the antidote to fear. In the words of the great poet Mary Oliver, you do not have to be good. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Until next time, stay ungovernable. Bye, everybody.